Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn and welcome to Bad With Money. The show is changing, or rather going back a little bit. We ran the numbers and listened to feedback. And for the first time ever in my life, it turns out people want to hear my voice. Not just my thoughts and opinions. No, no, no. My actual literal voice. So we're going to take the show back to the personal. I'm going to talk more. I'm going to talk more to my friends. I'm going to have more to say. I'm going to talk more about how I feel about each topic. We're going to learn what's going on with me and the people I know and love in my life. Each week, we'll cover a topic by speaking to an expert on housing, neurodivergence, dress codes, sex, and then flip it around and talk to one of my friends or loved ones with lived experience on that topic. Get to know me more. Get to know my buddies. Get to see how these issues play out in real life. So this season's premiere is about making money off misinformation. There are all kinds of influencers working on the internet these days. You could say I'm a financial influencer, although you... But there are mommy influencers, wellness influencers, comedy influencers, which I think used to be called comedians, cleaning influencers, etc., etc. But what once used to live in the corners of the web or on coast-to-coast AM radio can now make you a conspiracy theory influencer. The stated problem in 2016 was that individual bad actors with no personal stake in the truth or outcome and or individuals paid by foreign governments were posting fake news stories online. The idea was for these websites and stories to look professional and legit enough to fool older people or anyone with a predisposition that let them believe this is what was happening. One example I found was like, U.S. Navy SEALs acting under the direction of former President Donald Trump arrested Hillary Clinton today. Didn't happen. But that headline wouldn't seem conspiratorial. 
It could get clicks and shares and posts on Facebook and make its weight in gold in Google AdSense revenue. Then there's the true conspiracy element of it. Hillary Clinton is holding children hostage in a pizzeria in D.C. to use for child porn and satanic sacrifice. More outlandish? Deeper? Hillary Clinton sacrificed and ate 10 babies to maintain her youthful appearance and global power. Okay? But now, conspiracies have evolved to where people are putting their names on their work. And that is what is allowing them to make an even higher income. Alex Jones, a man who said the tragic Sandy Hook shooting was a false flag operation, sells merch. The flat earther anti-science community has its own celebrities like Mark Sargent. It has rappers and podcasters and authors and woodworking artists and yes, merch. The conspiracies create community, friendship, a sense of purpose, career. They also cause immense pain to survivors of these quote-unquote false flag events They bolster believers to violence, like the January 6th storming of the Capitol, and they set climate change activism back again and again. If you could become the first person to tout a conspiracy, even something as seemingly simple as doctors don't want you to know about this miracle cure for cancer, you can stand to become very famous very fast. You can get tipped for live streams, charge appearance fees to speak at conventions, start a Substack blog or a Patreon... The wilder the conspiracy, the better, because it helps you stand out. I like the world of the odd, and I have a dark sense of humor that I sometimes have to keep in check among mixed company. My house has a Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself mug amongst its collection. I love when the coast-to-coast host, sometimes creator Art Bell, sometimes others, gets calls from alien abductees. I listen to conspiracy theory podcasts, but mostly ones that simply explain the conspiracy or debunk it and not ones that try to sell you on it. But this is my money and my time. I'm a consumer for this content. Should I be thinking about the ways I myself am giving money to the conspiracy economy? Should we all? It's capitalist supply and demand on a base level. Publishers could refuse to publish books about how the Parkland shooting didn't happen, but the author could self-publish on their own website, sell directly to a hungry consumer base, and make a good living. Alex Jones has been banned from many social media platforms, but his show and website still do numbers comparable to anything on network TV. In 2018, the show and his website were getting 25 million clicks a day. YouTube and Google have said they've tried to shut down accounts promoting dangerous content, but the algorithm also heavily promotes these videos. They get views, which leads to more views because of being promoted by the algorithm, etc., etc. Even if they're demonetized, the views can get eyeballs to blogs, create merch sales, invite tips. And then TikTok, you know, the fast pace of it allows for information to spread far and wide without context really, really fast before anyone can do anything about it. The Washington Post article from 2016 that kicked off this entire topic was written by Abby Olheiser, Senior Editor for Digital Culture at the MIT Technology Review. I read that article and I was like, we have to do an episode about this. And graciously, Olheiser agreed to be our expert guest today. Hello, I'm Abby Olheiser and I'm a reporter for MIT Technology Review, where I cover digital culture. That has meant a lot of things. Sometimes it's creator culture, YouTube and TikTok. But one through line since I started this beat has been 
misinformation and platforms relationship to misinformation and sort of like what the worst things on the internet are doing to us. Wow, that's so uplifting. (laughs) Uh, So we found you because of an article about people making money through posting quote unquote fake news on Facebook. But that article was from around the Trump election in 2016. So can you say a little bit about what was going on then? And then can you also talk about how that has changed in the last four to five years? So at the time I wrote this article, it was like maybe two weeks after Trump had become president-elect in 2016. And people were freaking out about fake news and misinformation as a possible cause of that election result. Some people, I think particularly people who have the privilege of not being targeted by online abuse and harassment and racism and anti-Semitism, maybe thought of misinformation as a curiosity that happens over there and it's like a bad thing to shake your head at. And around this time, people were starting to consider the real-life impacts of it. So there was the election, which some people believed was a result of misinformation. I think it's more complicated than that. Around this time, and I'm not remembering dates correctly, you know, the Pizzagate conspiracy theory was starting to become ascendant, which- Oh, I've been doing a lot of research and Pizzagate comes up a lot. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, it was rising really quickly, right? So the weekend before the election, I had debunked the precursor to it, which is called spirit cooking. And, you know, someone put my parents' address online because I wrote that article. I had encountered that stuff before, but maybe people who hadn't were starting to see this. And, of course, Pizzagate escalated to the point where somebody showed up at a pizza shop, which was walking distance to where I was living at the time, and brought an assault rifle in and opened fire. So Mm -hmm. people had very little information and wanted to know a lot about what was going on. And Mm -hmm. That is the context in which I wrote this article and we started covering, quote, fake news, unquote, for an audience that was very hungry for information and maybe didn't necessarily have the context. It's like everything and nothing has changed. So the bottom line of the article is that it is easy to make money through ads by setting up a website where you publish things that people are going to want to believe and share. I didn't think about misinformation at the time as something that was just on Facebook, but I think certainly now it's just everywhere. You don't need social media to get a huge audience for a piece of misinformation or disinformation. And I think that's one difference in how people think of things now. And also, practically speaking, Facebook changed its newsfeed in 2018. So it de-incentivized content for publishers, which is something that legitimate news outlets had to deal with. So it's like a journalism big deal. That also obviously affected publishers who were less legitimate in terms of the the views they were getting. So, you know, just like legitimate creators and people who produce content on the internet, people who create misinformation and try and get an audience to it are also sort of subject to the same algorithmic changes and incentives and disincentives that everybody else deals with. All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Let's get back into it. How did the newsfeed change? So I'm going to take a good stab at this, but try not to get too detailed because it's been a while. Sure. So, you know, Facebook was a big traffic driver for publishers through these changes in 2018-ish. The way Facebook frames a lot of things is we want to connect people to other people. 
to mm-hmm. make meaningful whatever. And so they framed it as that, where they they said people are going to see less content from publishers and more content from people. So the newsfeed is like what you see when you open up Facebook. Facebook still plays a pretty big role in the dissemination of misinformation and disinformation. But where I personally still see it as somebody who uses it professionally to keep an eye on things is in private Facebook groups. Right. Right. So spaces that are a little bit more closed off. So I report on health misinformation. I've done that for a couple of years. And so I'm in like a bunch of groups for people who believe that you can cure cancer naturally. And, you know, I, I still see this content in there where it sort of has more of a self-selecting audience. We're going to get back to that. But how much were individuals making back then and now off of these articles? That is a good question and a hard one to answer. And I think anybody who has been a creator online or knows about how that works will kind of know the answer, which is like both more and less than you think. Google ad revenue is one of the major drivers. And so we spoke to someone in 2016 who claimed they were able to make 10K off of like a particularly successful venture into political fake news. The issue with that figure, right, is that this person is by nature of what they do an unreliable narrator. So (laughs) yeah, there was a study in 2019 when I was kind of looking into this to prepare for this conversation. There was a study in 2019 that came out by the Global Disinformation Index that sort of tried to answer this. Essentially, they found that ad tech and brands were still unwittingly helping these sites to make money. Basically, they looked at Sites that PolitiFact, which is a fact checker, have deemed kind of regular offenders in the misinformation world. And they looked at what ads were placed there and how they were getting ads. So Google served 70% of the websites in this category that they sampled for the study. It's not just ads. InfoWars is a merch store that has a channel, right? So like you can sell merch. You can become an influencer and get speaker fees. That's another big change is like the ease with which you can become an influencer or an influential figure or get booked on Fox by doing this. You know, I think Facebook makes tens of billions of dollars off of advertising and they're not super discerning about what is being advertised. Are they actually purging? Are they actually working on getting rid of this stuff or are they just kind of like lip service? So this is like an eternal journalism question. So there's sort of a cycle to covering this, which is that reporters or activists see something going on on Facebook that is really bad and hurting people and should not be happening. And it gets media coverage or attention. And then Facebook updates their policy or takes it down or says, we actually allow this. And then maybe releases a policy update later saying, no, this is not allowed anymore. Mm -hmm. And then journalists find more stuff and then Mm -hmm. bring it to their attention again. And so like that cycle continues, right, like for sure, on every platform. That is absolutely happening. The rules and public attitudes have certainly changed on these platforms, right? So like when I wrote that article in 2016, I'm not sure that Facebook had even acknowledged that they had a role in amplifying misinformation then. I think they were still kind of saying, don't look at us. Yeah. Where obviously now they do take that much more seriously and have much more robust policies. But the constant problem is enforcement of those policies and consistent enforcement of those policies. And also 
enforcement of them in more closed spaces. Because that's the other thing is that these are in WhatsApp group chats. These are in private groups. This, these are circulating in private spaces. It's like, it's not just influencers. It's also that there are these like really well-tested networks of how to get information into audiences that want them really quickly. Mm-hmm. And those networks still exist and know how to adapt to rule changes. So most people saw this after January 6th, where platforms really cracked down on some of the worst stuff happening there. And people moved to other platforms. And it's mm-hmm. not that it's not like that deplatforming meant nothing, but it didn't make the people who believe these things disappear. I think it's a twofold situation, which is like They can't stop all the bad actors, but also they're making money based on how much time you're on the site. I was reading that basically like if you crowdfund via Facebook, Facebook takes a cut and also they don't have any way to police who's crowdfunding on the site or, you know, they have like a a live stream segment that (laughs) I don't have Facebook. So I literally sound like I'm from the planet Mars, like explain, like I just read about social media, but like, you know, you can tip them. So there's kind of these ways to get around it, but also there's no incentive to stop these people from crowdfunding. And then people come at you and they're like, well, the first amendment. And it's like, you know, this fundamental misunderstanding of what the first amendment means So let's get into these private groups that people do private groups or they crowdfund or they sell merch and that's a way of getting around like they don't even need the ads being monetized anymore. Okay, yeah, let's let's break this down a little bit. Let's get into it. Yeah. So there are definitely people trying to sell products. I don't know if you spent much time in like natural health communities, but multi-level marketing schemes are a real problem. And I think they're annoying for the people who are in those spaces. So It is very annoying if you are a believer in natural health to post like, hey, I have this thing and I want to know what to deal with it. And every single comment is buy my essential oils. So actually, in these groups, there are a lot of rules against like not selling things, but they're promoting protocols and resources and people who are selling things. I wrote about this a couple years ago with cancer. And the people in the group are not necessarily there to sell something, but there are influencers and doctors and people who run these kind of bogus clinics who make YouTube videos that get millions of views, who have online presences that are popular and have keywords you can search. So I'm not going to say any on this, but there are specific phrases or like slogans you can search or like the name of a protocol to cure a certain sort of cancer. And people in these groups will tell you to Google these things and look them up. And what you will find is either what's called a data void, which is essentially when the only the only information about something comes from unreliable sources. Okay. So like if someone said that not drinking water for three days could make your hair double in length, right? Okay. Nobody's debunked that. So if I started making a bunch of websites promoting this and selling my method to not drinking water for three days to like promote hair growth, like all of the results when you Google the phrases I would tell you to Google would be about that. Mm -hmm. That is called a data void. And one of the reasons why misinformation perpetuates is because people are really good at creating and filling them, 
very quickly as social media companies and everybody else is trying to catch up to how these things are altering, right? So QAnon is a good example of this, where at some point they really stopped using QAnon hashtags and just started using things that were like a little more subtle. And, you know, it, it takes time for people to catch up. I'm forgetting the term right now. I'm trying to see if I wrote it down. Oh, keyword squatting, which is a term that researcher Joan Donovan um, and her team came up with. She's a misinformation researcher. So keyword squatting is similar to that, but it's not as exclusive. So keyword squatting means that you're populating as much as you can a certain keyword so that when people are told to Google something in, in one of these groups, that they're led to results that support the piece of misinformation. And health misinformation is where it's most obvious how people make money, because if you're saying that there's a cure, you might be selling the cure. Right. So like that is sort of, I think, the easiest place to see it, because there's such an obvious motivation. That's not necessarily true. Like sometimes people just want to influence people. Yeah. Or they want to promote a racist idea, or they want power. Right. So it, it can be very tricky. But when you look at health misinformation, like it is very clear that people are trying to sell a product to you or a protocol to you. So you have to be authentic in the sense that you have to not post that you need to buy the essential oil in the group, but you need to say, you know, what really helped me is this and then secretly have a website. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> oh and, you know, it, it functions on anecdotes. So anecdotes of success. And the thing that makes all misinformation work, which is an emotional reaction. So misinformation works because it scares you or because you're scared, essentially. And when I wrote about the groups, I had a lot of compassion for one of the women I interviewed who had spent a lot of time in that group. Her sister was dying and it was really hard for her. And she was looking for help. You can have that compassion for people who are scared or emotionally triggered by something and are believing something because of that without then being too sympathetic to the people who are profiting off of it, right? Because like yeah. they're not necessarily the same people. No. I think a lot of the people in these groups just want to help their family members. And that's what they think they're doing. They're not there to sell anything, but their activity is helping somebody else make money, probably. Yeah, it's the people that are getting wealthy off of it are taking money from the people that don't have any money to give. Yeah. And you're right. Fear is a big part of it. When you get to the root of it, a lot of times it's, I lost my job. I've benefited from white supremacy. I'm scared. You know, like they wouldn't necessarily be able to put it in those terms. It's so sinister. Have you talked to any of the people that are behind this stuff? And like, do they truly believe in it? Or are they just trying to make money? Again, we get to the unreliable narrator situation with that, right? Yeah. Where, you know, I have interviewed people who sell natural cures and they obviously tell me they stand by their products. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's in their heart, but I do think what you were saying is very important. And it, it is actually something that has been coming up a lot in misinformation spaces recently with the vaccine, which is... There are lots and lots of good reasons why marginalized communities in the U.S., particularly black people and particularly black women, don't trust the healthcare system. Right. We don't need to go over them, but there are plenty in the past and the present. Misinformation targets those communities that are vulnerable and tries to turn them away from things like the vaccine that could help their communities. So we're talking about life and death, but we're also talking about situations where fundamental truths and people's lived experiences are being manipulated 
in order to harm them. Right. And for people to make money. And so people tend to think of misinformation as like exclusively a problem targeting white conservatives. And I think certainly it has been weaponized in those communities in a way that is not comparable, but it also targets more vulnerable populations and vulnerable people in a way that is extremely harrowing. Even low-income white people are often the the people that are most harmed by the white conservative millionaires who are ma- I mean Alex Jones like people who people we haven't even heard of that's the thing that also stuck out to me about your article is that it's like <laughs> there'll be someone with like four million followers who is like peddling you know their their merch and their live streams and their tips and everything and most of us have no idea who that is, and they're like a mm-hmm. star in the misinformation world, and four million people follow them. And like, I think it's similar to influencers where there is a space where if you're the first person to come out and believe this thing and say this thing, there's money for you there. Yeah, and trust and influence and all those things. Like what you just said describes every part of the internet. And it's just like, these tools can be used for good or bad. Is there anything legally that could be done or no? I was looking at stuff about brands like Office Max and Sprint and and all these kind of things are are popping up as doing ads on these known misinformation sites. But like, is there any way to be like, hey, Sprint, you know, don't do this. If you can't get something done legally, is there like something where like we could all just be like, boycott XYZ because they advertise on such and such? So that does happen, right? So people do point out when companies' ads are appearing on particularly extremist or misinformation-laden content. I have for sure seen those campaigns over the years. I hate to bring up Adpocalypse, but essentially that with like different motivations and different reasonings behind it. But like campaigns like that do happen all the time. I can't speak to the legal situation around those ads because I'm not an ad tech expert. Right. I think that like that is a big question for this whole space that a lot of people are thinking about. And when I talk to experts about it, it's about reforming Section 230 in a way that's sane and not the way that has been memed that we should be doing. What's the meme? Oh, that we should get rid of it. That Trump wanted to get rid of it. What is it? Oh, oh, okay. Um, (laughs) Section 230 is essentially the regulation that allows social media companies to avoid legal liability for the content that is posted there. Got it. So Trump wanted to get rid of it when Twitter started fact-checking his tweets. He got, (laughs) like, literally two days later got really mad and was like, we're repealing this. That's not what I'm talking about. There are very smart people like Marion Franks who want to reform it in smart ways. Mm -hmm. And then other experts will say – One, these systems of incentives that these companies have developed over the years have to be fundamentally changed in order for anything to happen. And, you know, other experts, like I have a few experts I've spoken to nearly for a decade on this stuff at this point. And like a lot of what we talk about these days is how this is a human problem. Right. This isn't about ad tech. This isn't about who makes money off of it. This is about what humans are doing to each other. And all of these bigger kind of societal issues. And so I think like you just have to kind of keep zooming out at what's happening and address these things the best you can at every level. That was really well put. 
So someone could listen to this show and go, well, this is fake news. How do you criticize actual fake news without playing into the trope that like all journalism is corrupt or partisan? There was a scholar, Whitney Phillips, who came out with this really great essentially handbook for journalists to avoid amplifying and participating in these things. With the disclosure that I was one of the journalists she interviewed about like how we work, like I follow a lot of the best practices that she mm-hmm. came up with, which just include centering the victim, centering harm. All of these things that are like really human and good for telling any sort of story, but that can be very hard when something like mysterious is happening over there. And I think mm-hmm. journalists, particularly like white journalists in this space, need to fight against their instincts to write the profile that's like, here's the fascinating white supremacist, which is a lot of what was happening after 2016. And instead, like- But Abby, they're so fashionable. Oh, God. How can I not write about them? It's like like (laughs) doing not that. It doesn't mean that you don't interview them if you need to for your story. Yeah. But understanding that it's not just about like who you're – you're not just presenting information on like racist misinformation for the audience to decide. Like you are telling a story that is going to influence people and understanding that role. And that is a fundamental divide in journalism Mm -hmm. right now that has been really interesting to play out. But for me, it comes down to – taking the weight of the responsibility I feel as a journalist to tell something that is true and fair and making decisions about what is most important for the audience to hear in order to hear that story. And for me, it's not the extremist point of view. It shouldn't be. It's necessary for the story sometimes, but I don't think that writing 80 profiles of the same white supremacist who made some meme that the president retweeted is gonna help anything. Thank you so much, Abby. Where can people find your work and find out more about you? So I'm on Twitter at Abby Olheiser, A-B-B-Y-O-H-L-H-E-I-S-E-R. My last name is a nightmare. And my publication is MIT Technology Review, and that's just technologyreview.com. Next up, I'm so excited. We're going to be talking to Ali Siegel and Melissa Stetton, co-hosts of the Erios podcast Web Crawlers, which is one of my favorite shows. Stetton and Siegel cover cults, the supernatural, conspiracy theories, true crime, and weird and fascinating aspects of society, while also being funny and weird and fascinating themselves. Shout out to their producer, Maria, who also adds surreal hilarity. Ali and Melissa are buds of mine, too, so I wanted them to come on and to talk about how they personally responsibly monetize the world of conspiracy. Melissa, can you both introduce yourselves and tell me about your podcast? I think Allie, go first. I would love to hear what you think your show is about. (laughs) First of all, how dare you? (laughs) I am Allie Siegel. My co-host is Melissa Stutton, who's here also. We have a podcast called Web Crawlers. It's on the Erios Network. And Web Crawlers started with we were kind of investigating true crime, paranormal, supernatural, UFOs, everything like unsolved and mysterious. But then more recently, we kind of took a detour and we started investigating the time Red Lobster almost went bankrupt (laughs) from an all-you-can-eat crab buffet (laughs) or Tyra Banks's behavior on America's Next Top Model. So it really runs the gamut of just things that we find interesting and bizarre. 
Yes, <laughs> Melissa is the co-host. And what would you say is like the crux of the show? Because like some people I think say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory show. Oh, I mean, we do talk about conspiracy theories. We talk about Yetis and Bigfoot and like cults. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we do like to get into like conspiracies about what the story is about, but it's not like Bush did 9-11 or like (laughs) (laughs) it's fun conspiracies like McDonald's ice cream machines are always broken. And there's there is a conspiracy behind that from like the higher ups. Yeah. So obviously there's a difference between disseminating conspiracy theories in the Alex Jones way and then talking about what they are. So why do you think people are so interested in content about conspiracy theories? I think it's just people wanting to feel like special, like they belong or they came across this like crazy information that no one else knows about. Yeah. Things aren't really working out for me how I was told they would when I was young or how I hoped that they would. So therefore, there must be something going on with the government or the world. And it's probably some sort of conspiracy or I'm being lied to or something's being hidden from me. So with Flat Earther specifically, it seems (laughs) like they make money. I mean, there's conventions, there's artwork, there's books like... (laughs) Flat Earth artwork. There is. There was in the documentary. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Can we talk about your Flat Earther episode and why you felt like it was important to dispute him? Well, he, Mark Sargent is, he's the guy in the Flat Earth documentary. He's like Mr. Flat Earth. This is his whole life. His thing is like, if you can show me the Earth is round, I'll believe you. I'll change my mind 100%. No, he won't. No, he won't because he makes money off of this. Right. And he is so good at talking to people. He's gone through his whole spiel so many times that like it was hard to stop him and be like, well, wait, but that's not, is it? So I just went back to the episode after every point he made. I'm like, no, this is how the earth works. This is how science works. This is why he's wrong. He does speak at conventions and gets paid his yep. YouTube. I think I don't I I imagine that YouTube might be um, changing its laws now based or his rules. But he was getting money off ads. Like you said, he had merch mm-hmm. and things like that that he would sell. He also had a podcast that he did with another flat earther that also got like Patreon subscribers and money. So this is absolutely something that created a revenue stream for him. Do they even believe it, though? That was my next question. If you don't have a job, if you don't have skills or whatever, you can become the most famous person that believes this certain thing. Do you get the sense when you research that they're doing this for the money or that they actually believe in it? I think majority are doing it for the money. Like Alex Jones for sure is Mm -hmm. doing it for the money because he even had to say like in a court of law recently with his like divorce settlement that what he says is not news, it's entertainment only. Uh Like he had to state that in a court of law. He's like, I just do this for entertainment purposes. This is not news. This is not true. Like he knows it's not real. But people believe it is news. Yeah, that's the problem. Because people are gullible. Well, yeah, even if Alex Jones stopped believing what he was saying, he would still have to do it because he would lose all his money. I felt that way about Mark Sargent. I think it's such an easy way to make money, even cult leaders kind of. I was going to ask you guys about cults and wellness and that kind of stuff. How much of that do you think is is money-based? 
Oh, I think most of it is. A cult really becomes a cult once money starts being involved. That being said, I'll preface this with, (laughs) I do do Reiki and I am a life coach. So (laughs) take it with a grain of salt, whatever I'm saying. I do have certifications and things like that. And I have been doing it since before it became trendy. But my preface when I do work with people is I am not going to heal or cure anything that you have. This is uh, addition to any medical or psychological treatment that you will be getting. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's this discrepancy in the wellness community where people are saying, I can cure you, I can heal you with this sound bath or by stinging you with bee venom, I'm going to cure your Lyme's disease. And they offer this like magical cure or like fountain of youth. And then people are throwing all of their money away to this person. Yeah. Same with psychics, all that kind of stuff. It's really easy to get addictive when you feel like you get like a grain of something that might put you at ease. So yeah, there's a lot of con artists, I think, in those different communities because it's it's easy. And even if you look at what's popular on television, like Discovery Plus has whole sections for supernatural stuff or like true crime or, you know, paranormal. I mean, it's what's interesting now. The top podcasts every day on iTunes are all crime. Is web crawlers? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are number one. It's all true crime where people, I think, feel like they're learning. And like Melissa yeah. said, that they're learning something secret. They're learning something special that no one else knows. They're finding a community. But then it's very easy to monetize that community. I noticed on your guys' website, the stuff that you monetize is all very innocuous. It's like Bigfoot <laughs> or like Satan. <laughs> yeah. Do you think about like where you draw the line on we're not going to make merch about this thing? Nothing that like hurts people. I think we we're going to make a t-shirt about the police. Like we had had a joke about what to say. Uh, if you were kidnapped, just tell someone that you're the chief of police. So then they'd stop kidnapping you. <laughs> and we were like, let's not do police stuff or law enforcement stuff. So like we do have some like discretion, but if it's something playful or something we've made clear in the podcast that we probably don't think is true. I think if we put a Bigfoot shirt on our site, people aren't going to storm the Capitol. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like, (laughs) I think like that's where the line is drawn. Like, I think like if there, if we can imagine there's not going to be negative repercussions, then we're fine. (laughs) That's very funny. Do either of you have Facebook? I don't. I do, but I, I haven't posted on it in years. I go on it once every six months, maybe. I don't have one either. And I was doing research for this episode and it seemed like Facebook was the number one disseminator of incorrect information. They make most of their money basically off that. They sell ads. When you're Mm. like looking for information for the show, how do you know what sites to go to or what to use? I know Allie obviously visits history.com every morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. It's my bookmark. As long as it's on multiple different news sites, mm-hmm. then we'll talk about it. Like we we'll talk about stuff we see on Reddit, but we'll preface it by saying this is something we found on Reddit. So this could be real or not. You guys do a good job of like commenting on it. And, and like I feel like there's some sort of weird respectability of like, well, you have to let this person believe what they believe, you know, if they yeah. think that an alien is going to come down and tell them, you know, this. But I feel like that's the slippery slope is that like one person will say that. And then after two seconds, you're into Nexium. 
you're, (laughs) you know, you're like basically two steps away from Scientology at all times. And then with Nexium, you know, we, you touched on this earlier, but it's like that started as paying money to better yourself. Yeah. Like self-help. That's how all cults start. Yeah. So how do they get you? You know, Melissa is a former Scientologist. I do know that. Yes, I do know that. <laughs> I was a Scientologist for like three weeks. I can't believe they let you out. Nobody's a Scientologist for three weeks. <laughs> That's what's so bad. They didn't even want Melissa. They, they were like, bye. Melissa got kicked out of Scientology. <laughs> they tried to get her and she yelled, I'm the chief of police. I'm the chief <laughs> of police. And they're like, okay, lady. Sure you are. Yeah, but like when I was a Scientologist, to me, it was like a self-help thing. Like, oh, this is all very useful. All the intro stuff is practical. Like treat yourself better and be open with communication and love yourself. And I'm like, this is great. And then Mm -hmm. it slowly starts getting into like Xenu and your Thetans and all this stuff. And you're like, okay, no, this this isn't real. But But do you feel like by the time you've invested all of this money, that's how they get you? Because by the time you've invested this money, you're like, you know what? I'll have sex with Keith Raniere. Like, fine. Yeah. It's when the cult leader starts having sex with the women. (laughs) That's always that's a red flag. Also, I think there's always a first stage where it's like self-help. You learn something that betters yourself and it's actually effective. Like it's like neuro-linguistic programming and you actually start feeling better about yourself. Then there's always a second step where they take your inventory, where there's some person who's more in charge than you, who starts asking, what are your resentments? What have you done wrong in your life? And so then you do that. And then they kind of have this blackmail stuff on you. Mm -hmm. And then third step is give me your money so that we can relieve yourself of all these burdens. So then you start paying the money. So then you already have this twinge of like, oh, but can they make me feel better? And then it's this snowball effect. And then all of a sudden you're having sex with a five foot tall volleyball player and there's no turning back. There's no going back from that. And at a certain point, you you have to believe it and you might want to get other people in on it because it's like either some sort of Ponzi scheme where you need other people to be in on it for you to make money or you're just like, I don't want to look dumb. I need to go all in on this. I need to get other people to validate this for me. Like the flat earther community to me I was like these people just want friends and they're like they want to they want to have a job they want to have job security they want to make friends they want to have something to rally around and it really could have been anything and it just so happened to be flat earth and then but then it's this disseminating of the information that then makes more money makes more money like Facebook doesn't you know curb anything like that they say that they're going to but they never do there's so much money involved in this like is there any incentive to not be part of these communities no, unless you have decided in your heart that it, that it is morally terrible and you can't go on with it, why would you stop doing it if you're successful with it, if you're making money? Yeah, I think you have to hit like an emotional and spiritual rock bottom. But I'm wondering if people who lead these things, like if you're a member, yeah, maybe there's a point where you leave if it stops working for you. But if you're like a Keith Rainier, like Alex Jones type, I think you have to hit some sort of spiritual bottom. And I'm wondering if people like that have the capacity. There's always going to be people like that in the world who capitalize off people's fear. Totally. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you guys and also web crawlers? We are on Twitter and Instagram at web crawlers pod. And what about you? Oh, you can find me at Melissa (laughs) Stetton on the internet. Just 
Google away. Whoa, okay. Melissa wants to be Googled. I'm on Twitter at <laughs> Online Allison and I'm on Instagram at AllieBaby90 and I do not want to be Googled. <laughs> I liked what Abby had to say, right? This is not a tech company problem anymore. This is a people problem. The only way for this to stop is for everyone to have a change of heart or for there to stop being an audience for it. And both of those are Herculean tasks. Some, partisan or not, might even say that this show is fake news or that being anti-Trump was based in leftist conspiracy theories. Truth depends on where you find it and who is speaking when you get there. The market for these lies is huge, and the way to stop it is changing hearts and minds on such a massive scale that I wonder if under capitalism it's even possible. It's overwhelming and depressing. As for myself, does my self-proclaimed dark sense of humor come across when talking about conspiracies? What's the difference between someone who spends money on these products ironically and one who does it seriously? Not much. Breaking these different parts of fake news down is helpful, and of course, as I've said, not all versions are the same. But spending money, time, views on one opens the door for more. I'll give you a personal example. It might be risky for me to talk about, but I read a Substack blog by a right-wing author. Like, I check on it every once in a while. Some of the points she makes are salient. Some are trash. I told myself I did it to see what the other side was saying. The more I read the more some of it made sense. I'd gotten comfortable perusing it. And then, an article rife with transphobia. An article about trans kids that truly contributes to trans youth suicide. And that's the danger on an individual level. It starts out reasonable, if not harmless. Becomes normalized, if not misguided. And then turns hard and fast into violence. It always does. I don't want to spend money on that. Done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.